This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Donna Freitas discusses her new book, The Happiness Effect, how social media is driving a generation to appear perfect at any cost. Then PW contributor Edward Nowatka reports on the American Bookseller Association's Winter Institute. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. So, um, big news before we get on to our hardcover fiction and nonfiction bestseller list. The number one book in the country is 1984 by George Orwell. Apparently, a lot of people really want to know what a dystopia looks like and what can be done once you're in one. So, uh, that's uh, uh, there's going to be a news story in the upcoming issue about reading in the time of Trump, and that'll have more on that. But mm. I just wanted to mention that. Great. And uh, also, new and notable on the list, uh, not strictly a debut, but worth uh, mentioning is History of Wolves by Emily Fridland. It's number 20 in hardcover fiction this week. Uh, we start it. It's a debut novel. Uh, we called it Stellar, and uh, it's a BEA buzz pick. So um, we're thinking that's probably why it's getting a little bit of a boost. Great. Um, so elsewhere on the hardcover fiction list, uh, we have uh, a few new books, not a lot. Uh, we have number five is the top debut. It's The Girl Before by J.P. Delaney. Uh, this is a riveting psychological thriller, according to our review. Delaney is a pseudonym. Uh, and uh, in this book, first Emma Matthews and then Jane Cavendish take up residence at a, a masterpiece of minimalist architecture in London. Uh, and it's let only to tenants who are willing to abide by very strict rules about reducing life to its basics. But uh, Emma and Jane both find themselves drawn to the house's creator and its tragic history, uh, including some questions about deaths that may or may not have been accidental. Uh, and uh, right sales in more than 30 markets, movie rights to Universal, mm. with Ron Howard directing lots of excitement oh, wow. about Great. this book. And uh, we say that writing with precision and grace, Delaney strips away the character's secrets until the raw truth of each is revealed. So that's a number five. Uh, moving down the list a bit, number nine, Power Game by Christine Fian. Uh, this is lucky number 13 in her contemporary paranormal romance Ghostwalker series. Our review says it's packed with heart-pounding action and toe-curling heat in the heart of Louisiana's swamps. A uh, steamy love story pairs up a bioengineered killer with a physically and psychically augmented super soldier. Uh, and it's a big engrossing thriller novel uh, with a romance plot and uh, lots of paranormal activity, though we do note that too much emphasis on past events and some distracting repetition bogged down an otherwise exceptional novel. Uh, but her fans will certainly be happy to eat that up with a spoon. And uh, at number 12 is Death's Mistress, the Nikki Chronicles book one by Terry Goodkind. Um, Goodkind is certainly no stranger to the bestseller list. He's been writing doorstopper epic fantasy for a very, very, very long time. This is a tie-in to his well-known Sword of Truth series. Uh, it launches a series of its own. Uh, our review says it's more of an episodic ramble than a classic fantasy quest. Um, there are two familiar characters going in search of a third, uh, and they must uh, save the world, as one does mm. in books of this sort. Uh, and we say that little ties together the challenges that the three characters face, and Goodkind's name guarantees an audience, but they'll find this installment unsatisfying. And uh, finally, down at number 21 is Fatal by John Lescart, and uh, this, whose name I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. And uh, this, we say, successfully blends a police procedural with a whodunit in an absorbing standalone book. 
uh, a married woman phones a lawyer and uh, suggests that they rendezvous at a hotel, supposedly to discuss legal matters, um, but they end up having an affair and he becomes obsessed with her. Uh, our review says that the challenges for the protagonist lend some verisimilitude to the story and give it a satisfying rhythm. And the author keeps readers guessing until the very end. Great. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Excellent. Well, on nonfiction, we only have two. Uh, one we've discussed before is called Atlas Obscura, an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders by Joshua Four, Dylan Thuris, and Ayla Morton. And uh, this one, as you said, we discussed before, but it's gotten a, a bump at number seven again because of new distribution from Workman, the publisher. So uh, my, yeah, many more books are available and therefore or being bought. Or Seems being very bought reasonable. Because, yeah, exactly. So, and this this book pretty much celebrates uh, over you know more than seven hundred of the strangest and most curious places in the world. So, a lot of fun. Uh, the only other one we have is at number nine, Gosnell, the untold story of America's most prolific serial killer by Anne McElhaney. And uh, Philem McClear, I'm not too sure if I pronounced that one correctly, but this is about uh, the the uh, conviction in 2013 of Dr. Kermit Gosnell, a doctor who was convicted of killing four people, including three babies, but is thought to have killed hundreds wow. or, or more in a 30-year killing spree. Um, this was down in Philadelphia. Uh, he got the name, the um, I guess, the baby killer. So uh, it was controversial because apparently politicians wanted to cover this up, thinking that uh, there would be uh, a lot of kickback from against uh, pro-life supporters. So hmm. uh, anyway, uh, and this was this was uh, at number nine. And that's all we have. And that's all we have. Well, yeah. it'll be interesting uh, to see whether our bestseller list picks up again someday. I feel like we've been seeing that for a while, just saying, you know, oh, not God, much happening, since, not much happening. Yeah, since September, um, October. Yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm sure people will eventually want to read something besides 1984. I hope so. Or... or- get their you know something other than on their whatever on their twitter or uh, facebook feeds so. it, it is hard to tear oneself away yeah. and focus on a book that's right. longer than 140 characters exactly, yeah. Um, yeah. but I, I think we'll get our attention span back i think it'll happen all right good i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio next up donna freitas tells us about the joys and dangers of students on social media we'll be right back Hi, my name is Jeff Howe. I'm the co-author of the book Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Donna Freitas with us. Her new book is The Happiness Effect, How Social Media is Driving a Generation to Appear Perfect at Any Cost. Hello, Donna. So glad you could join us. Hi, thanks for having me. Very nice to have you with us. So in your book, The Happiness Effect, you take a look at the dilemmas arising from social media use among students. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, this project started out because I do so much speaking on college campuses and uh, particularly about um, sex on campus. And in my college visits over the last few years, the students that I was speaking to had so much interest in talking about social media and they wanted to know what other people like their peers were thinking about social media if they were struggling as much as, as they were, if they were alone. And, and so I kept answering that question by saying, somebody should really look into that. And so finally, I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to look into that. And so I launched the study. And it was really very open uh, to start out. I just just wanted to get a sense of, um, you know, broad things like what are college students thinking with regard to like, do they enjoy social media? How is it affecting their sense of self? So like their identities, the way they construct their identity, um, and also how they see their place in the world or, or lack of one. And then also just um, their relationships, of course. And so it was just broad. And but one of the things that was just fascinating when I started out the research was it almost didn't matter what question I asked. The subject of happiness just kept coming up. And so students were really identifying this uh, difference between their real lives and then their lives on social media, which may not sound that you know crazy because everyone on social media is thinking about their image now. Like, what, what am I projecting? What am I saying? Uh, but students talked about it um, 
that they're they're on it so constantly one of the things that's happening is that they they're really <laughs> they're really aware that there is a difference between what they put online and who they really are and what their friends put online and what they see of their friends and one of the things that kept coming up though was that it's not just that they um, do this spontaneously that they just you know think it's a good idea to only put happy pictures or only put you know comments like I'm having such a good day uh, it's also that they're learning to do this from um, their college counselors in high school and their advisors in high school as a way of um, helping them get into college. And then also while they're in college, they're learning this from career counselors and their coaches and even some of their professors as a way to help them get jobs. So they're marketing themselves as happy people in this in this very specific way, this idea that that uh, it's not just like the power of positive thinking is going to help you get further. It's really like you have to promote yourself as a happy person because other people will want you around if you're a happy person and they won't if you're not. Well, it's not just that they want you around. It's that they might admit you to college or they might not. So, I mean, uh, and or they may hire you, they may not. And the same goes for opinions. I heard a lot from college students about how you know, it's really tricky. You shouldn't express a controversial opinion on with anything attached to your name on social media, because what if a future employer goes back into your Facebook account and sees that you're a Republican and they're a Democrat? You know, the job market is so cutthroat. Mm. If they have two people that look somewhat identical, you know, um, on paper, that that Democrat versus Republican thing, Republican thing might make all the difference in terms of a hiring decision, even if you know you're not supposed to think about those things when you're hiring. Sure. And so, um, so they're they're actively, you know, the first time I interviewed a student who said, well, oh, you know, my name is my brand. I almost fell off my chair. You know, I, I was like, oh, oh it goodness. is. And I heard, you know, students talked about their names as brands. Um, they talked about. Uh, you know, curating, cultivating, crafting their profiles. I have a whole section in the book about the three C's, which I learned of social media. The three C's of social media, curate, craft, and cultivate your your profile with an eye toward who you think is going to be seeing it, who might have power over you in the, in the future. And they also talk about um, their publics, plural, and their audiences, plural. Like, they know that they have audiences. And so they're, they're self-aware uh, of their their actions, their you know the the words they're putting out in public in a way that I certainly was wasn't when I was growing up, but they're they're doing this because um, you know we there's lots of articles in the paper all the time about how college admissions officers are checking out people's Facebook profiles, mm. and students are afraid of having that offending picture that will get them you know negged from Harvard. And so in many ways, it's a it's a very real concern because we are evaluating their their Facebook profiles and their Twitter accounts and things like that. But it's also taking a toll on them. They they just you know, they're on social media all the time. And so they don't always want to have to be thinking, you know, so hard about what is someone four years down the line going to think about this? So regarding the happiness effect. So we're creating or these you know people are creating this this happy profile of themselves what is the, what is the effect that it has on them well uh you know all the students i spoke to were also very savvy in knowing that you know they would talk all the time about how well social media is so fake social media is so fake because they know that they're being somewhat fake on it or they're they're putting a lot of effort you know some of the students would talk about how it take them like an hour to just craft an update on Facebook because they want to say it just right and they want to you know they're they're editing themselves to to such an incredible degree and so they're aware that they're not the only ones doing this that everybody else is doing this that that many of their friends will take 250 selfies in order to get that one perfect one. Or that, you know, I heard students talking about how there's like the hour photo session at a party where, you know, you and all your sorority sisters are not really having fun. Like you are getting that perfect shot that's going to go up on the website. And in the meantime, you're miserable taking all these, you know, like 300 photos before you actually get to enjoy yourself. And so... They're aware that the ways in which people are spending time, you know, curating those profiles are is, is very, very, you know, high. Um, 
But it doesn't change the fact that when they go on it and they see everybody's amazing, shiny images and their super happy pictures and how they have a million friends and they've gone to a million beautiful places and they're so successful and accomplished, uh, it doesn't change the fact that they feel left out, you know, that they're not in the pictures, that they feel sad about themselves. And the very first student whose interview I tell in the book, I called her Emma, she was like the queen of sorority girls on her southern campus. She was at this big, big uh, Greek school. So Greek was everything at this school. And in fact, when I was on campus, I had to like step over. They were preparing for homecoming and they were like making floats in the hallways. And I had to like step over them when I was going to the interview room. And she was, you know, one of the heads of the top sorority on campus. She was stunning. And she sat there telling me about how how fake everybody was on social media, but that when she went on it, she felt sad about herself anyway. And so it made her feel left out and it made her feel unattractive and it made her feel like nothing was going right with her life because she talked about um, this experience of how, you know, everybody shows their best self on social media. But when you go on it, you know, you're just you. You bring your whole self in all of your inadequacies and all your sadnesses and all the things that make you feel bad about yourself. And so that feeling, you know, the, the bad side or like the, the part that you struggle with is the part that gets, uh, I guess, um, the, the, I don't know, it, it, she felt that most forcefully when she would go online. And so it would sort of bring that out in her seeing everybody's happiness when she felt sad about herself. So you had surveyed nearly 200 students in 13 colleges. What kind of questions did you ask? How did you conduct the survey? Sounded like, um, in some cases, by interviews. Um, how, did you, how did you go about doing it? Well, it's, I did 200 inter, almost 200 in-person interviews, and then I did, um, I think it was close to 900 online surveys, and it was 13 colleges and universities. And it's all, um, the interviews were random sampling, and so, which is great, because these weren't students who were like, social media, like, I'm obsessed with social media, I want to participate in your study. These were students that I had to kind of be like, please, please, you know, come to, you know, come to my study, because you got randomly selected. And so... So that's, you know, these were just students who I, you know, coaxed into do the interview. And I went to all different kinds of campuses and um, some of the, you know, a couple of the top campuses in the, you know, in the country and, and some that were all over the map, big, small, urban, rural. And the goal was to try to get a, you know, a, a broad selection of, you know, geogra- geographically diverse selection of, of colleges and universities, but just to try to, um, you know, just kind of literally pluck people off campus and be like, come and talk to me. And like, what's going on? What are you thinking? What kind of responses did you get? I mean, that's such a great open-ended question. It's just, what are you thinking about social media? How, how did people tend to start off? Like, what was the first thing that came to mind for them? Well, one of the things that I did on purpose when I started the interview was I just asked students at the beginning of the interview, the first question was just, so tell me about college so far. What's it been like? Like, how'd you meet your friends? What kinds of, you know, what's going on? And because I was listening to, um, to hear if they talked about social media, like right off the bat, if it was something that was just at the forefront of their college experience. And it was very telling because, um, there were only maybe two or three students that I interviewed. It was a a handful, like a very tiny handful of students who brought up social media right away or who told me that they had met their friends online at college. And mostly um, people didn't bring it up at all. And in fact, when they were talking about meeting their friends and like one of the things that they really loved about it was like college is so great because you meet everybody in your hall and you meet everybody in your team and uh, one of the themes that came out uh, in the study with regard to relationships was just that college students really want to meet people in person. Like, they don't want to strike up friendships online. Mm. They feel like, um, you know, social media is a way to check people out after you meet them. Mm. But they don't really like the idea of meeting people online. In fact, they think it's dangerous with regard to um, relationships, like romantic relationships. They think some of their parents are crazy for doing online dating because they think their parents are being dangerous and reckless online. That came up a lot. But they really long to meet people in person. And then they see social media as like a tool for 
for socializing, but not as a way to, you know, really create intimacy with their friends. And it made me think a lot about how we talk so much about online college. And it's very clear that, you know, one of the things that students most valued about the college experience was that in-person experience with their friends and their professors. And one of the problems that's come up, and you've, you've addressed uh, in previous books, but here's bullying uh, online. Talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, I, have a, I have a chapter on it. And uh, one of the things, so I asked every single student, so tell me about bullying. Like, have you ever been bullied online? Like, you know, do you know anyone? And everyone I asked would sort of give the party line of like, I think bullying is terrible and online bullying is a big problem. And, you know, we, ha- we, we got a lot of education about it in high school and, and I think it's terrible. And, and so they all would say that, but then, you know, they would often add, you know, but I've never met anybody who's been bullied or, you know, I've, I've never been bullied myself online. And, you know, so I would say that the experience of, you know, the kind of experience you hear about in the paper seems to be very, rare. It was hard to find someone who literally had known anyone who had a a very dramatic online bullying experience. But I would say, though, that um, one of the things I talked about in the book was there seems to be an acceptable level of meanness. And so students also felt like part of the deal with being on social media is people are mean to you. (laughs) And or, you know, you will experience sort of nastiness. You might get called a slut. And, you know, if you're a a young woman and um, there's just kind of a general level of meanness, meanness, you have to be willing to endure. It's like the price of social media. And then I would say I also have a a section of the book called bullying is in the eye of the beholder, because what became very clear, too, was that, you know, the acceptable level of meanness um, online differs depending on the person. And so I did interview, um, I think it was about three students who had, you know, talked about how they were bullied online. And it was terrible for them. Like it really you know, destroyed them in, in many ways. And so you can see how, how much it takes its toll. But I would say that, you know, what they experienced as online bullying, another student I spoke to might have just brushed off as someone being a jerk. And so it really has to do with um, the kind of vulnerability that you bring to, to social media. If you are someone who is very sensitive, then you are going to have a harder time on social media. And I would say that your average you know, young person now is, is learning to sort of steel themselves against a certain level of meanness or trolling because of social media. And that makes me worry about just vulnerability. Like our, our young people are learning that being vulnerable is, is dangerous or problematic. It'll get you hurt. What are kids getting out of social media that kind of balance out these stresses and problems? You mentioned uh, being able to look up someone that you maybe met at a party. What are, what are the other things that keep them coming back to this space, even though they find it unsatisfying and sometimes really painful? I would say the top two things really were just it's good for making plans. I mean, literally, it was very simple. It's really good for making plans and it's great for keeping in touch with people who don't live near you. So like if you studied abroad, you know, and you, you know, you went to Africa, you can keep in touch with your friends for free, you know, you know, in Africa or um so in many ways, it was those two things. And like, they like photos, they like to look at photos. And, you know, so simple things, I, I would say that um, the thing that I heard the most craving for was just getting to be silly. And as, you know, high school students, college students are learning that there's a price to silliness and, um, and not being perfect on Mm. online. And, and so I do think that, um, so the most popular by far, the most popular app that came up in the whole study was Snapchat. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to figure out why. And, um, people were just, you know, they were sort of like Facebook. They were so unhappy with Facebook. Facebook is the online CV. It's like the, you know, it drains them of energy to think about it and talk about it. And, um, but then they were like, Oh my God, I love Snapchat. Snapchat's the best. And it is because I think, um, even though everybody knows that you can take a screenshot, uh, so Snapchat is like the, the, you know, the, the post or the the picture or the text that disappears after 10 seconds or a couple seconds. And um, even though they know that you can take a screenshot, they felt like 
it was really one of the only places where they could be themselves with their mm. friends because it disappears. Uh-huh. And so they could take a goofy photo or they could be dorky or they could even be a little bit like down. Like they'd be like, I'm having a bad day, which they feel like they could never say on Facebook because what if a future employer sees that you were having a bad day? They won't hire you. Uh, like they're getting this right. advice. God. So Snapchat was like cathartic. And then the other place was Yik Yak, which is just went viral when I was um, doing the study. And Yik Yak is a whole other level, though. Yik Yak tends to be like, it seems to be like a bullying app at this point. Um, those students, uh, so it's like an online anonymous Twitter that pulls from your GPS. And so um, so each college will have like a college Yik Yak because it, it pulls from everybody in your, you know, within a, you know, your radius. And so, uh, so you can go on a college's Yik Yak and you will see some of the nastiest, sexist, racist things that you have ever seen in your life. And you know, in many ways, I feel like the um, the the ways in which young people are learning to craft everything they say contributes to this, you know, so they're pushing down everything that they think. And then you have these anonymous spaces where they feel like this is the only place I can be honest. And what comes out is actually, you know, often quite disturbing. But I would say that, um, you know, the thing that people crave the most was just having fun. Like they just want to have fun. So aside from like making plans and keeping in touch with people who don't live near you, they just want to goof around. And so social media is fun in that sense. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Donna Freitas, the author of The Happiness Effect. So I was going to ask about anonymity and pseudonymity because when there's all this concern about uh, every Facebook update goes on your permanent record, as we used to say when I was uh-huh. you know, looking at college admissions, um, and, and there's this idea that it's all attached indelibly to your name forever, obviously there's a need for anonymous and pseudonymous spaces. Are there any um, outlets like that where um, you don't descend into this sort of pure id counterpart to the to the totally polished sculpted facade i would say sure i mean all of them can be outlets for that i mean yik yak is too you know sometimes um you know students uh would talk about some of the yaks as they call them (laughs) you know that they like they'd be like oh there's this guy who's who talks about how he's like sitting up on a tree on campus all the time and like he just talks about the silly things he's observing and they loved his yaks and so you know i think you can find um just about any example of like, you know, just being silly or just having fun uh, on Yik Yak, just like you could on Twitter, but you can also find the, you know, the other end of things. And I think what, what was very clear is that because of the high stakes around anything attached to your name, mm-hmm. I do think that it's important. Like I think anonymous and pseudonymous forums serve a real purpose. It allows you to like freedom of expression that you may not feel like you would have with something, you know, attached to your name. And I want that for my students. Like, I think that's important for if you're going to be online all the time, I want you to be able to be yourself at some point. I don't don't want you to have to be thinking of, you know, editing yourself constantly. Um, Just like, you know, in the classroom, I want my students to be able to express themselves without fear. And I think, though, as a culture, we need to think about the extremes that we're setting up for for young people. Because, you know, they do seem to have this choice between one thing or the other. They can either be, you know, crafting their brand, you know, their name brands, you know, for the benefit of people who have any power over them. You know, so college admissions officers or future employers, you know, on on places like Facebook and Instagram, they're attached to their name or risk being judged severely and harshly and the consequences of that. Or, you know, they can choose these, you know, um, these other forums, the anonymous and pseudonymous forums, where maybe they'll just get to, you know, be themselves and have fun. But maybe, you know, they'll they'll sort of go to the other extreme where, you know, they are very, very nasty or like there's there's also this culture 
on Yik Yak and other you know places like it where it is sort of almost fostering like the worst side of ourselves or allowing those sides to come out. And I, I worry that, um, I'm, I guess I'm very Aristotelian. Like I always am teaching Aristotle, um, Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics in my classes because he had this amazing, um, concept of, you know, ethics, like the ethical has to do with the mean. And so, um, we practice, uh, we practice virtue, we practice vice. And for him, the mean is different for everybody, but it's about sort of finding like what is right for you and like what works for you. And he was really against going to the extremes. And so you, know, you can have, be a virtuous drinker as opposed to, you know, um, he wouldn't want you to be a teetotaler necessarily, but he wouldn't want you to get drunk every night. And so I always ask my students about things like virtuous drinking and, you know, what would that mean for you? And it would be different for a giant football player than it would for like a, a four foot five person. So and, you know, I do think that we're not really thinking, we're not helping young people think about, you know, where is the happy medium online? You know, what are the best ways we can express ourselves, you know, honestly and in a way that makes us ourselves feel empowered as opposed to just for the benefit of our future employer? And I worry that, um, I do think young people need to worry about what they're posting because future employers are looking at their Facebook pages but I'm not sure that they should. <laughs> so because because of the, the way that it's um, kind of wreaking havoc mm-hmm. on on young people and their ability to express or, you know, their inability to express who they really are online. Did you talk with any students who have wanted to just escape social media and just take a break from it? And if so, were they ever able to? Or is it just so so ingrained? Is it just so part so much a part of their lives that they can't? Oh, definitely. I, I, I didn't originally have a question in this, in the interview, um, about unplugging either voluntarily or involuntarily until I I did like 20 interviews and almost every student brought it up. Like just randomly, they were like, Oh my gosh, you know, I went, I went on this trip with my, you know, my parents this summer and they took my phone away. And at first I was so upset and traumatized and I didn't know what to do with myself. But after three days, I was like, thank you for taking away my phone. This is the best <laughs> vacation I've ever had. And and so I would say that I, I can't tell you how many times I heard that. I heard that from just about everybody. And hmm. there was always this initial resistance to it. Like I was traumatized. Like I went um, you know, and there was like a... A trip, you know, a camping trip, and we weren't allowed to bring our phones, and I almost didn't go because of it. And then I'm so glad I did because I met friends and talked to people like I hadn't since I was like five. And so, uh, so I, I think most students were aware that they that having time to unplug was really positive, that it changed their interactions with friends. Um, I, I would say that they, they also struggle with it. They struggled with the letting go of the phone, you know, for a while, which is like the delivery device for social media at this point, the smartphone. But the, and then they struggled when they came back to it. Like some of them didn't want to come back to it. Some of them also dreaded the fact that there would be a million messages they would have to deal with. And so like the just the outpouring of all the like to do lists, like the, the giant to do list mm. after they've been away. So they are aware of the consequences of being off their phone. But I met so many students who were trying to regularly incorporate uh, some sort of unplugging. Like there were all kinds of different techniques. Like I had one student told me that the reason why she went to church was because she couldn't bear to bring her smartphone in. She thought it was just disrespectful. I had other students who told me they took like selfies in church, but um, there were some <laughs> students who were just like, you know, I, I won't pick it up and I need that hour a week. And I had other students who were like, I, I leave my charger at home specifically because the deal is that once my phone, the battery runs out, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just out without it. Um, I had students who were away from it for months at a time, like on purpose. Mm. And, uh, but I would say that they, they loved it when someone else took it away from them. Like someone took the burden of deciding away Mm -hmm. from them. And so I, I would definitely, you know, even if, you know, they get, dirty looks from their kids. You know, I, I would say parents should not be afraid to, um, to help their kids unplug. I, I was going to ask if you had advice for parents. Mark and I are both parents. Uh, and uh, one of the first things I, I did was uh, when we found out that my partner was pregnant was make a Twitter account <laughs> because I spend my life on Twitter. And, um, and, but we keep it locked and you know, we post baby photos there, but only people who know us can see them and it's under a pseudonym and like I was already thinking about my unborn child and how to protect them <laughs> uh, you know their privacy and um, 
make sure that like if they want something with their name on it, then they have access to that. And you know, it's an amazing like set of responsibilities from the parental side. Uh, so what can parents do to uh, obviously helping their kids unplug is a big one, but what, what can we do in general to sort of help bring some balance to this conversation and help our kids be safe? Well, aside from, you know, don't be afraid to help your kids unplug. And even if they resist you, they may actually appreciate you eventually. Uh, Aside from that, I would say that, you know, so many of the students that I interviewed had never had a conversation with their parents about social media or really talked about, you know, what's going on aside from just rules like no sexting or no nude photos. Like they might get that advice, but that's about as far as it extends. There's more just fear of social media and that drives a lot of the conversation. And while of course all those things are important and it's important for, you know, the young people in our world to know that like the keg stand picture on Facebook may raise eyebrows to the college counselor. Like that's important. Um, but I do think that they they crave conversations beyond the things that we fear. And so they don't want to just hear from their parents, you know, don't do this, don't do that. I mean, they, they do want advice, but they want to be able to talk about how, you know, it's really hard for me when I see my best friend Sarah posting all of these like pictures like these like sort of glamour shots of her when I know that she's depressed all the time and I don't know what to make of it and you know I think we need to think more holistically about social media this is a sphere where we're you know we're operating all the time and you know what does it mean to be doing that like what would we want to put out into the world but also um, how does it affect our self-esteem our sense of self like all of those conversations which are you know, maybe less scary than the, oh my gosh, a nude photo's gone viral. I think they're the ones that um, the young people I met were most craving and most lacking. And so many of them had epiphanies during the interview. And afterwards, you know, they were like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I thought that. And they felt so excited about this thing they articulated. And, you know, one of the things they often said after the interview was like, no one has ever really talked to me about social media like that. Like none of their teachers, none of their parents, none Mm. of their professors. And they really want to talk about the meaning of it and how it is affecting their sense of self and their relationships and, you know, whether they have a place in the world. And we don't seem to be offering them that conversation. So I would say that don't be afraid to have those sort of big picture conversations with your kids. They need them. So you end your book with eight guiding principles for the use of technology, and you do base that on Aristotle. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, if uh, you don't feel like reciting all eight of them off the top of your head, um, you know, pick one or two. I guess uh, that came from my, well, I do love Aristotle, like I mentioned before, because I'm a geek um, and I have a philosophy background, but uh, I just, it just seemed like the students that I talked to were really just living between extremes and just sort of fluctuating wildly between them and then just feeling torn or frustrated. And, um, and I was just trying to think about, like, it seems like we need more moderation. And I also think, you know, I wish as a society that employers, like I understand the impulse to go check out people's posts, but I, I understand, um, So I understand that impulse, but I don't know that it's healthy that we're doing so much evaluating, you know, of each other. And I think we need to think more about, okay, if we're going to be on social media all the time, we need to really think about decorum. Like, what do we like? How do we want to be? How do we want to be as a society who's going to be online? Do we want to be holding people accountable as though they're the president? I feel like that's a loaded thing to say right now. But, you know, um, the kind of scrutiny that someone who's a, you know, a politician might get. Like, do mm-hmm. we really want to apply that to everybody? And so I guess I kept thinking about, like, what is moderation on social media? What does that mean? Like, it may make sense for you not to bear your soul on Facebook and talk about how you felt total despair. You know, it may not make that may not be the sphere for it, but I'm not sure it's healthy that, you know, the young people, you know, that I spoke to feel like, oh, I can't even say I had a bad day because that seemed to me that seems pretty extreme. And so I guess I, I just kept I, I wanted to really push people to think about um, what would moderation look like? You know, what would, you know, um, you know, 
where is being on 24 seven a good idea? So I talked a lot about um, the students I interviewed. Some of them talked about how they feel like they can't even sleep, that they need to be available because of smartphones, even, you know, during the night when they're supposed to be sleeping. And that to me seems like a hard, a hard thing to maintain, you know, health wise. And so, um, so I guess I want people to think about like, are there ways that we can not go from, you know, racist, sexist, comment on yik yak to like look at me i'm perfect on facebook is there a is there a middle way we've been talking with donna freitas and you can find her book the happiness effect in stores right now donna thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me i'm mark rotella and i'm rose fox and this is publishers weekly radio next up pw contributor edna watka talks about this year's winter institute so stay tuned Hi, I'm Lodra Rinsler, the author of Love Hurts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW contributor Edward Nowatka is here to tell us all about the ABA Winter Institute. Hi, Ed. Hello. How are you guys today? Doing very well. Thank you. Nice to have you on the show. Um, so you've, uh, you've just come back from Winter Institute. Tell us about some of the highlights. It was an interesting year because obviously with the political atmosphere in the country being very charged, the Winter Institute, which is usually focused on the simple uh, practical agenda of helping booksellers sell more books, shifted into a very political, uh, very uh, social justice oriented gear very early mm-hmm. on in the, in the show. So everybody was uh, was fairly united in their opinions on this, or were there was there a lot of debate? I wouldn't say there wasn't a lot of public debate. I think that the assumption is the vast majority of people uh, would skew a little bit liberal in their political uh, tendencies. Though, as somebody, I myself, as a as an editor, also cover the Western United States, I knew several booksellers who had. Um, you know, who felt a little aggrieved at the tone of some of the conversation, mm-hmm. which, to be as direct as possible, uh, hinted at the fact, uh, sometimes overtly, sometimes more subtly, that the book selling profession is largely skewing uh, white and that uh, there was an underrepresentation of diversity uh, from minority voices, minority constituencies in the bookselling world. And this was made very clear on the first day by a keynote speech that was made by uh, the writer Roxane Gay, Mm -hmm. who called out the room for being almost exclusively white. Wow. So uh, definitely a lot of conversations happening all at once. Yes. And it was very intense. I mean, as somebody who who's covered bookselling, covers publishing for for a long time now, I've, I've rarely um, been so exhausted <laughs> by the uh, by the intensity. There was just a lot of anxiety. And I think a lot of that, you know, is stemming from some of the changes in Washington or the implied agenda of our new government, which appears to be somewhat hostile towards uh, certainly the arts and freedom of speech questions. So uh, how was Roxanne Gay's speech received at the Winter Institute? It was very well received. I think that she certainly woke everybody up. It was the opening keynote on the first day. And interestingly enough, I mean, she didn't... um, she didn't confront or challenge so much as as simply identify, um, you know, the fact that these are these are the issues that at one point she said, you know, she doesn't just see it in the room, which was filled with some 650 booksellers, um, another 80 publisher sponsors. Um, so we're talking about a very high powered group of people in the book selling community. But she said it wasn't just the book selling community was white. Her concern was that all of the readers she met on the road, uh, as she described them, were white women and the men who love them. Huh. And this was to her a concern as well. And she just felt that with the tenor of the country, it was going to be more and more um, implicit and germane to the book business to to not only represent uh, this one constituency she had identified. Was there any conversation or did she address any possibilities? I know this has been a long, you know, ongoing conversation in the book publishing world about how to attract diverse groups of readers. 
she um, held back a little bit, uh, but she did say this, that it's going to take money, it's going to take a lot of it, and it's going to have to be invested for the long term. That was the one thing that she said was going to to change the uh, this uh, what she called an intractable uh, intractable problem of diversity in book selling and the book business by extension. It's a it's a it's a tough question, and I I spoke to a lot of booksellers uh, about this, and there was no shortage of particularly among prospective booksellers. I mean, there were at least three African American booksellers that I spoke with personally who were all opening bookstores, which is a good sign. Uh, by no means is it near the same number that was at the height of the, um, you know, black-owned bookstore movement, which sort of uh, peaked in the 1970s with around, um, I believe it was around 80 in the country at one mm-hmm. point, which is quite high. Mm-hmm. So um, there was no shortage in that sense. I mean, proportionally, there was a disproportionate. But the question of finding good booksellers to begin with was what many of the booksellers identified. They said it's hard enough to find people who understand and can talk about and sell books. Uh, and then adding a layer of diversity on top of that makes it even more of a challenge. And often the bookseller said when you find a bookseller who is from a, um, a diverse constituency, they're often very, very talented and very quickly recruited onto a different, uh, a different job. So they're very hard to keep. That makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah. I, I definitely um, I agree that a lot of this is a money question. Uh, you know, I've, I live in a, a majority black neighborhood, and I just look around at the the places that are managing to just open storefronts, and and I think about the margins at bookstores, and I wonder, you know, how how would they be able to stay afloat? Uh, and uh, it's definitely there are definitely some financial and practical challenges to working within those communities. Yes, but it's but but to the ABA's credit, there was a town hall meeting, uh, and I would say there were at least a half a dozen of very uh, emotional uh, presentations by booksellers. Everybody, not not um, not exclusively from African American community. There was one bookseller named Noel Santos, who I believe is both African American and Hispanic, who is opening a bookstore in the Bronx. She made a very specific plea for her bookstore, but there were also people from the LGBTQ community who were standing up and saying that this was a very much underrepresented um, yes. constituency as well. So we heard a really a, a big diversity of voices. To the ABA's credit, though, they immediately said, okay, one is you elect the board. So if you want to see diverse members on this board of the ABA, which itself was, was all white, um, we want to point out that you elect the members, so please do nominate them. Uh, it was suggested that the ABA's administration needed to diversify, at which point the ABA pointed out that their head of human resources, they had her stand up in the room. Uh, she, without identifying you know, verbally, but she, she gave a wave, and she herself is African-American. Um, and then the next very next morning, um, this was on Saturday or on Sunday, on Monday morning, the ABA announced that it had formed a, a working group, uh, a committee to address diversity issues within book selling. So uh, things actually was taken very, very quickly, which I think is, is quite a testament to the ability of the ABA to, to, to function as a, as a group. Oh, that's wonderful. So I want to pull back just a little bit. Just just uh, give us a little uh, glimpse about the, you know, what the setting is like, the attendees. Uh, and then I want to talk about some of the highlights. It's a fun event. I mean, I think what a lot of people would, would acknowledge at this point is um, Winter Institute has very much become what the American Booksellers Association trade show, which subsequently became Book Expo America and is now called Book Expo. No America had been for many years. It's perhaps the most relevant event to the booksellers themselves. There were 654 booksellers registered, of which 350 are new, which shows a level of a wow. you know a level of excitement. Yeah. There were quite a few young booksellers, which is also I think um, you know really a testament to the health and prosperity of the profession. And by young, I mean, we're talking 
before it was very much a middle-aged occupation. I, there's no other fine way to put a word on that. And I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, so I would count myself in that group. Uh, but here we saw a lot of people under 30, which I think was, wow. was, um, wow. was really great. And there was a big injection of sort of energy, people opening up stores, um, some of them, you know, starting off very unorthodox. I mean, one of the, uh, you know, there's, you're now seeing a phenomena where pop-up stores are being converted into uh, traditional bricks and mortar shops. People are opening up bookstores in, uh, you know, in airstreams. Uh, the mobile book uh, bookshop is is quite a quite a nice phenomena. And a lot of these folks, when they get a taste for it, uh, particularly because they're younger, then they transition into being more of a traditional bricks and, bricks and mortar store. So that was that's a great great event. There's a lot of socializing. There's a lot of book chat. There's a big room filled with galleys uh, where each of the publishers will lay out a pile of what they are hoping will be, uh, you know, entice and seductive to the booksellers who really are responsible for turning books into bestsellers. Talking about so hundreds of titles being piled up with the with the booksellers coming in and, and perusing and grazing among those. And there are also long sessions Many hours of bookseller rep or publisher reps, rather, actually sitting at small tables and pitching booksellers their titles for the fall, so or for the summer and and, and the fall, which is pretty exciting. Oh, sounds great. So, what were the highlights? Well, this event is very much uh, fiction oriented, which is, I think, something that um, that may be changing in the future. There was definitely a, a question raised that. The, I would say 90 to 95 percent of the books being displayed and on offer were fiction titles, um, whereas uh, a lot of the booksellers did comment that this is a year when nonfiction is uh, is very much in demand. And also, you know, nonfiction is still what uh, what drives a lot of sales at bookstores as well. So at least half, you know, around half of the book sales being nonfiction. So they would have liked to see more. Um, I would say on the fiction side, people were taking a very a strong interest in titles that uh, either had, came from a diverse author or in particular from the uh, Islamic community. Mm. And, um, and I think that that's no surprise. Uh, I think people were very much reacting to the news, you know, the, uh, the ban uh, that was put in place by the Trump administration on refugees and immigrants from, from certain um, Muslim predominant countries really impacted a lot of people in the room. We were in Minneapolis and Minneapolis has a very large community of Somali uh, immigrants, for example. So title wise, I think there were there was there were two books. One of the books, um, and I'm going to uh, please forgive my pronunciation, was a novel called American War, which is coming from Knopf in April. Uh, the author, his name is Omar Akkad, and he was born in Cairo uh, and grew up in Qatar uh, before moving to Canada. And he is an interesting, uh, interesting writer because this is essentially a novel about uh, what's called a second American Civil War, which breaks out in 2074. And there are a lot of um, overtones about class and race that, uh, you know, push into this or provoke this war. And so I think it's both a timely uh, book, but also a kind of futuristic dystopian vision mm. of the United States itself tied to class and race. So I think that that's, that's getting a very big push. There was a lot of, um, a lot of buzz about it. A lot of books. I was really excited about it. And then another novel, um, is called temporary people by Deepak Unis Krishnahan. Uh, it's published by restless books. And, um, this was the winner of their inaugural, uh, prize for new immigrant writing. Mm. And Restless is interesting because they started off as a digital first publisher and then quickly transitioned into print. And they've done some pretty extraordinary stuff on the fringes of the international community insofar as I think they were the first American publisher to to uh, publish Cuban science fiction, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and their their uh, editor-in-chief, Ilan Stavins, is himself an immigrant, a Mexican um, immigrant, Mexican-American. So he's got uh, a very specific agenda with his publishing house. This novel, Temporary People, uh, is by a writer who comes from the United Arab Emirates, actually. 
uh, and he'd been living in Chicago uh, and also in Brooklyn and New Jersey. He's now moved back to the University of Abu Dhabi, uh, the New York University in Abu Dhabi, to teach. And um, this kind of plays with a uh, satirical vision uh, that one might be reminded of. It's at least it's, we're being told by uh, similar to George Saunders or Salman Rushdie. And these are 28 linked stories that move from construction workers to kind of labor camps to this entire community of folks who are working in the Gulf as guest workers. It's really a uh, it's a really intense story. And um, and to see it fictionalized, very much based uh, based on true life, is is going to be a pretty intense experience for a lot of people, particularly with the World Cup, you know, coming up in Qatar in a few years, and and all the troubles we've heard about guest workers there. Um, I think that this has a lot of a uh, potential to resonate with a, a broader community of people who are are worried about, you know, the mistreatment of guest workers in the uh, Gulf states. So I I'm interested by this. Um the first book you mentioned, American War, uh, about a trend that I've seen recently, uh, at least on the publishing side, and I'm wondering if you're seeing this on the bookselling side, where books that I would think of as science fiction, as speculative fiction, are now being treated as very mainstream works, you know, seeing works that are post-apocalyptic, uh, works of alternate history, works of fantasy, uh, works about the the near future, possible futures, uh, and to to see something like Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad, which to me is pure speculative fiction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, winning National Book Awards and so forth. Uh, I'm just wondering if you're seeing booksellers who uh, maybe had been more of a literary bent being more interested in these speculative works. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that a lot of things legitimize the genre, um, you know, and, and certainly the popularity of dystopian fiction, particularly in the YA category, uh, certainly hasn't hurt. Um, but what I also think that people are finding is that uh, science fiction or speculative fiction, particularly among the titles I just described to you, which are essentially you know, foreign novels, they're written in English. Um, Temporary People, though, itself was actually, if I'm, um, no, Temporary People was not translated. But these are, you know, essentially foreign novels that they give you um, insight into the culture from which they originate, but they unify us, um, not through necessarily language or culture, but through the fact that they're speculative, you know, that it's a future that, because it's complete make-believe, could affect, uh, impact us all. Mm. I think that that's an interesting – the three-body problem, for example, is a book that you know a number of booksellers I know were recommending. Um, really? Yep. That's so and, interesting. This is a, that's a Chinese yeah. science fiction novel um, that was translated into English very recently and won a Hugo Award for science fiction. Um, so, I mean, absolutely – Science fiction, no question about it. Um, but uh, but that's very interesting. Exactly. I thought that was it was a fascinating uh, fascinating kind of pick. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, I think it's very much been le- legitimized. I, I also think though that you, you're seeing a new generation of people who were raised on uh, you know books like Harry Potter and The Hunger Games. Um, even divergent at this point, you know that's that's a generation that's that's moving up in in years. Um, they're as they're transitioning into more challenging, um, let's say, overtly adult themed books. Uh, you know, SF and um, hard speculative fiction, and and of course fantasy as well is you know is showing um, that's a resilient audience. People are are turning back to it uh, when they when they're looking for something to read. It's also very escapist. So it can be quite wonderful that way, you know? That's true. Well, it's definitely something a lot of folks could use right now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, no, I think, I think it's pretty exciting. I mean, there was another, it's not to say, though, that people aren't really unwilling to engage with hard issues. There's another book coming from Little Brown in April uh, by Brian Van Reet, uh, which is a book called Spoils. And this is a novel uh, which is actually an Iraq, uh, essentially an Iraq war novel. It's it takes place in 2004, and it's about a small unit of American soldiers that gets overrun at a checkpoint. Many of them are killed, and three of them are captured. One of them is a woman, and it's the story of her, you know, imprisonment. But it's also told. It's told from three points of view: one from a soldier searching for her, 
from her point of view and from the jihadist who um, who has captured her. So you get this very sympathetic view of all three characters, um, and it's quite powerful. And again, uh, this is getting quite a quite a lot of buzz because the author has done quite a good job of of portraying uh, not only the American point of view but also the point of view of the of the jihadi, which is not something you see a lot of from American uh, fiction writers. That's true. Well, that sounds definitely like something to keep an eye out for. It's exciting. These are all these are all really good reads. Um, it certainly takes a long time for you know, as they say with with uh, books about the military, the first books are written by the journalists as the first draft of history. The second draft is written by the generals who want to uh, apologize for the mistakes they made, and it takes the soldiers about a decade to recover from the experience of war to even write about it. So now we're starting to see that manifest in in novels and in short stories. That definitely sounds like an interesting trend to watch out for. Well, thank you so much, Ed. It's always great to have you on the show, and we really appreciate this very detailed recap. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Rose. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks, Ed. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 